This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. On the last episode, Brig Taylor from SlideBelch.com explained why your brand's competitive edge does not actually have to be your product. In this episode, you'll learn from an entrepreneur that runs in-person 24-hour events to market their vision and brand. In this episode, you'll learn how to attract smart people to your team, what is a public benefit corporation, how it can help your business, and how to prepare to launch your own in-person events. Today, I'm joined by Stefan Jacob from Cotopoxy.com. That's C-O-T-O-P-A-X-I.com. Cotopoxy creates innovative outdoor products and experiences that fund sustainable poverty relief Move People to Do Good and Inspire Adventure. We'll start in 2014 and based out of Salt Lake City, Utah. Welcome, Stefan. Thanks, Felix. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be a part of the community. It's definitely excited to have you on. So tell us a little bit more about your, your brand, your store. What are some of the you know, most popular products that you sell? Huh. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. So we're, as you said, an outdoor gear brand. So we design and manufacture outdoor apparel, tents, sleeping bags, backpacks, both technical and lifestyle. And um, we started about two years ago, based here out of Salt Lake, um, I'm looking out of my window and have the, the mountains in my backyard. And uh, so that's really why we, we chose, you know, to, to be here in a place where there's a very, very active outdoor community and um, are really fortunate with regard to like access to talent and, um, and just, you know, people who, who really love the products and use the products that we make on a, on a very like regular basis. Um, we, you know, some of our most popular products um, are, um, there's one which is called the Luzon del Dia, which is a, a very minimalist um, day hiking pack, uh, but it has a really cool, rich backstory, and that's performing really, really well. On the apparel side, you know, the basic mantra that we live by um, is sort of this warmth without weight concept. So we have a lot of different pieces that um, keep you nice and warm, insulate you well, but they don't. Uh, you don't feel like you have to rip them off your body the moment you step inside. And um, there's uh, one product in particular, the Kusa jacket, which uh, we actually use llama fleece, llama fur um, as, as an insulator. And, uh, and that's doing really well. And uh, now with the spring coming, um, we just launched a new running jacket called the Parade, which is like an ultra, ultra lightweight jacket that packs into a tiny pocket um, that is, uh, is off to a great start. Awesome. So what, what's your background? How did you, did you have experience designing outdoor apparel or gear or how did you get into this industry? Yeah, I, I did not. I mean, I was, um, I'm originally from Germany. I was born and raised in Munich, um, close to the Alps. Um, and ever since I was a little toddler, my godfather, who was an officer in the German special forces, um, took uh, me and his son, who was my age, you know, out into the mountains doing crazy wild things. And, um, so that, you know, that's how I, I grew up and always, um, you know, loved the outdoors. Um, I joined the special forces, um, after graduating from high school myself and, um, just always as a consumer, you know, loved that industry and, um, just always, you know, have been a, a gearhead at heart. 
And um, I, I, you know, did a computer science tech background in college, um, and uh, sold my soul for a couple of years to uh, to McKinsey, um, a consulting company, a strategy consulting firm, and uh, and loved that experience, but also realized that I just didn't want to be a consultant for the rest of my life, and so went to to business school um, at Wharton, where I met my co-founder here for, with Code Epoxy. Um, and started a business out of school, um, which was also an e-commerce business that was essentially a discovery platform for small independent um, apparel and accessories designers. And um, so it was an omni-channel concept. We had several stores and um, and then obviously our e-commerce space and uh, ran that for a couple of years and just really super valuable experience that I benefit from you know every day now with um, the second go around with Epoxy. Exited that in 2013, and then uh, teamed up with uh, Davis, my co-founder, um, who also is a very experienced entrepreneur, um, and we we started this one here. Very cool. So I, you know, so the outdoor apparel is obviously very different than just selling like T-shirts or designs on clothing because there's probably a lot more technology involved with outdoor apparel. And because you didn't necessarily have this background in it, how did you, I guess, overcome that or work not necessarily yeah, around absolutely. it, but work with it? Well, I think this is a, a general learning, you know, as an entrepreneur, you, you will never have all the skills required to build a business and to make it successful, right? So I think the first step is to recognize, hey, I am not an experienced outdoor apparel designer and developer. And, um, and so that's step one, having that realization. And then step two is, okay, how do we fix that? Well, it's, it's by bringing in incredibly talented people who do have that skill set and who um, share the same like, core values of what you want your organization to be. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, bring in people who can fill those gaps. And that's exactly both Davis and, and myself. We, we did not have that background. We were you know, e-commerce entrepreneurs and had experience scaling and building businesses, but did not have the product background. And besides loving, you know, outdoor products ourselves as consumers, but not from a design and development perspective. So our third co-founder, uh, his name is CJ, CJ Whitaker. Um, he is from the industry. He has been working with Gregory and Black Diamond for, you know, 12 years before joining Code Epoxy and uh, designed some of their most award-winning gear during that decade. And um, so he's sort of the, the brains behind the product and our product vision and strategy. And then part of the founding team was also um, another person, Cherie, who is our director of apparel, who's an incredibly experienced and skilled visionary um, when it comes to apparel, outdoor apparel, um, and sleeping bags, etc. So all our soft goods are under her um, direction and then hard goods under CJ's. And so we essentially brought people on board, um, made them part of the team early on that would um, enable us to come up with truly innovative, amazing product from the get-go. Yeah, I think that's a great point about how you need to recognize what you're good at, what you're not good at, and then fill in those gaps by hiring the right people or partnering with the right people from the beginning. So I guess this kind of leads to the next question, which is, you know, that's, I wouldn't say that's an obvious, you know, thought because I think a lot of people are stuck at this stage, but let's say that you've come to this realization that you need to do this. Now the next kind of big hurdle is how do you attract, how do you find and attract these smart people that because they're so smart, because they're so talented, they could, you know, work anywhere. They could work for, you know, more staff brand or you know yeah. back when you were looking to work with them or maybe even start their own business so how do you attract the people when they have so many options and you're just a small player at the time yeah it's, it's a great question right and, and a real a real challenge how do you 
build a team when really all you have to sell is a vision. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we, we were able to convince the team that has come together and every single day, that's like one of the main reasons why I'm excited and so grateful, you know, to work on, on this project and, and built this company is the people who have made those leaps of faith um, and have moved oftentimes in Cherie's case, she was in, uh, in, in uh, Portland or close to Bend, Oregon, and then moved um, Hood River and moved here to Salt Lake City. We have people who moved from California, from, um, you know, the East Coast and like uh, from various places in, in phenomenal positions oftentimes and uh, making sort of the jump and transition um, to join a very small startup um, in, the, in the early stages. And I think ultimately what it, you know, came down to is um, we, we have a very, very big vision. We truly believe that we can build, you know, the next large scale billion dollar outdoor brand. Um, and that's obviously, it's highly aspirational. Who knows if that will really materialize. But I think we, we were able to formulate early on um, the potential potential that and the sort of the white space that we see in the outdoor industry which in general is a very crowded space right there are gazillion brands and you could say like the last thing the world needs is another outdoor brand but we really feel that there is um you know if you look at the big players they've been around for a very long time whether that's a patagonia north face columbia etc those companies have been were built like 30 40 50 years ago and um, some have done a better job than others, um, sort of staying relevant and um, and staying in tune with this like younger millennial demographic that has um, has been on the rise for several years now as a consumer base. Um, and so we really felt that there was a white space there where we could build a brand that is specifically designed around the desires and aesthetic um, and taste preferences of that younger consumer. Um, so I think that's one, just to to showcase that, hey, we have the potential to build something great, to build something amazing here um, as, a, as a business, and it has the, the legs to scale. Um, and I think the second thing that has been very, really differentiating in, from a talent acquisition perspective has been the fact that we're, from the get-go, said we want this organization to be about more than just maximizing, you know, value for our shareholders. So we're incorporated as a public benefit corporation. Um, and what that means is that in our articles of incorporation, it is, it is stated that our reason to exist is not just to make money, but it is to have a measurable positive impact on the world. Now that's very vague, but in our case, what, how we sort of make that, um, concrete is that we, you know, our products, all of our products raise money for various humanitarian causes in three main areas um, of health and education and livelihoods where we have concrete metrics that we track and um, hold our, you know, nonprofit partners accountable to. Um, but it puts a purpose behind the organization and we, we truly look at ways to disrupt um, not just the way, you know, not just with you know, taking a portion of our profits and giving it to um, these various humanitarian causes to have a real impact in these communities, but really along the entire value chain, how can we make a difference? How can we do things differently? One example um, would be the the pack that I'd mentioned before, the Luzon del Dia, 
which is a pack where the only instruction we gave to the sewers at our factory in the Philippines was, hey, the only rule is no two bags can be alike. Other than that, you decide what thread color to use. You decide what panel color to use on mm. panel X, Y, and Z. And you're the designer, essentially. And we empowered these unsung heroes of you know, the outdoor industry, the people who actually make this stuff, to truly be creative. And it was incredible to observe the dynamic on the sewing floor, what that did when we sort of gave them, you know, the, the, the power to truly, you know, be creative themselves and create these packs, um, you know, based on their own mood, their own input, their sort of cultural norms. Um, and so, it, you know, the result is a very colorful, amazing product where every single one is unique. There are no two packs that are alike. Um, and we're going one step further now there where we, we start teaching, um, you know, development and design skills on the factory level um, to basically, you know, push these skills into, uh, into that um, workforce and help them um, grow um, as, uh, as individuals and professionals. And um, so I think that that has made a huge difference in terms of how people feel about, you know, joining a company like Epoxy as opposed to other opportunities in the market, um, because it's not just about a paycheck. It's not just um, about, you know, making a career, but it's about really making a difference and, um, you know, working on something that's much, much bigger than any single one of us. Um, and I think that's been a huge plus. Um, we've had on our first week after we lost, sorry, the first month after we lost, launched the first four weeks. We had over 400 unsolicited job applications just from people who were intrigued by what we were trying to do um, and just said, hey, I want to be a part of that. Um, and so I think the fact that we're a purpose-driven organization has been a big, big plus when it came to talent acquisition and talent retention. Yeah, so a lot of great things you said there that I want to definitely talk about the Public Benefit Corporation and how you empower the manufacturers before we get to that. So what do you do on a, on a daily basis? Let's say on a daily basis, what are some things that are on your to-do list or on your checklist that helps you or that, that lets you help the company focus on the vision? So we very recently rolled out a fairly holistic like goal-setting um, program based on um, OKR, um, Objective Key Results Framework, which was um, initially introduced by John Doerr at, at Google and, um, and has been um, you know, spreading pretty wildly um, in the startup community and sort of the larger tech community. And, um, so what does that stand for? You said OQR? OKR uh, okay. stands for Objectives, Key Results. So you're basically saying, what are my objectives, goals, if you will, <clears throat> typically on a, in our case, quarterly basis. And then we, you define three to five key results, which ideally, you know, should be measurable and like, you know, um, attainable, you know, like the sort of like smart uh, principle of goal setting, um, slightly adapted, but in, in, in essence, that's what it is. And um, in the initial phase, you know, we, we roll that out with um, our revenue goals and then break, you know, basically break them down. They're sort of the overall company goal and then it breaks down to sub-team goals and then you can break it even further down to individual goals. And um, so I think that that was one step as we, you know, grew as a team and we're still a very, very small company with just uh, 23 full-time employees. Um, but that was one way to sort of break down that bigger vision of what we're trying to achieve 
into um, you know very concrete actionable steps for every individual sub team and then every individual employee. Um, I think another big thing is just to live that vision as the leadership team. So we, um, for example, Davis, my co-founder, he was in Istanbul just last week um, at the World Human First United Nations World Humanitarian Summit. Um, we're very, very active individually um, in uh, various um, um, various um, uh, refugee rescue efforts where um, we work with the you know refugee community here in Utah. There are over 60,000 refugees. Uh, and with my engineering team, I launched a, a program there together with our chief impact officer, Lindsay, where we teach coding and computer science to um, refugee youth um, as a means to, you know, have, get access to very well-paying um, job opportunities without the need for expensive um, college education. Um, and so it, it's, you know, these like little things where we try to individually live by those values that, you know, we want to inspire others to live by um, and take very concrete, publicly visible steps um, to be these thought leaders um, and show people how they can make a difference. And so it's not just, you know, saying, hey, we have a social mission as an organization and X percent of our sales goes to, you know, nonprofit XYZ. Um, I think it, it needs to be deeper and more authentic than that. I think that alone is great, right? But for us, we really said we want to do more than that and really show that you can, you know, do well as a business, but also, you know, do good at the same time. And um, sort of be a role model individually, be role models in, in the community um, to, to do that. And it's like little things throughout our entire value chain um, where we try to bring that to light. One example is every customer that orders and then receives a package from us um, will receive a handwritten thank you card. And um, initially we wrote those cards ourselves, but that wasn't very scalable. So we started again working with the refugee youth community here um, and we set up a program where they basically write these cards for us. It's a paid job, oftentimes the first paid job that they have in the country. And then in addition, we do these um, like job readiness training programs where we coach them on you know, resume, interview training, um, you know, good habits, financial responsibility, all various skills, just members of the team um, will teach a workshop on a Saturday morning. And, um, and, and, and it's like a super rich, amazing, you know, story that, um, that, that handwritten thank you card basically tells. And so it's little things like that where we really try to bring the, the for good aspect, um, and integrate that into everything that we do as a company. Mm -hmm. So you're living the vision just through, through, um, kind of leading by example, and then the planning that you're doing with those OKRs. So I think it makes a lot of sense that you need to live that vision and you should be doing that from the very beginning of your business. But when it comes to things like planning with the OKRs, did you do this from the very beginning or does it make sense or does it only become a necessity later when you're more than a few people on the team? Yeah, I think it is definitely... We, we did not do that from the beginning. Um, I think even our size of the company, it's, it's early. Normally, many organizations will roll something like this out when they're you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 plus employees, just because it becomes really, really hard to create that alignment and sort of make transparent how every individual is contributing to the like, bigger, larger you know, uh, vision for the company. So... 
Um, yeah, we did it relatively early. I don't think you necessarily need something as formalized in, uh, in like the you know, first year or two. Um, I think you do need to constantly talk about why you're doing what you're doing, right? The why of, of you know, the organization at large and every single individual um, and their contribution. That is important to surface from day zero, right? So that you, you bring people on board who share that why, who understand like, you know, what are we trying to achieve? What is the, the end goal for this? And um, so I think that is important, um, whether that is through, you know, like all hand meetings where you, you talk about that as, you know, the, the leader, CEO, this, like the C-level team, talk about that vision um, and sort of break it down for <coughs> everybody in the team, like how they can contribute. Um, I think that is important from the from the early day because it's it's hard to you know bring that to life like two years into your journey, right? If it hasn't been part of the conversation for you know for two years, so I think that's important from day zero. But I don't think it has to be as formalized as a like you know goal setting system with hierarchies and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, even based on what you're saying before about the, the you might attract the wrong type of people too. This is a company if you're not. Uh, you know, talking about the vision and really injecting that vision from the beginning, because then you might, you know, bring the people that are not, uh, I guess, you know, a fan of that vision. So is it, is, it, is it just like, you know, when you're sending emails, having hallway conversations, these meetings, are you just always trying to find ways to inject the vision, inject the why into the conversation? Yeah, that's, that's correct. Um, we have, um, in our case, uh, we call it Academia Kodopaxi. So every two weeks we have an all hands meeting where we first do like a round robin um, type updates from every single employee in the company, what they're working on right now and challenges that they may face. And then the second half of that meeting is uh, typically a, um, uh, like a a teaching moment of sorts. And um, that could either be a guest speaker that somehow reinforces um, the vision and um, what we're trying to achieve. So we had, um, in our case, you know, we're, we're trying to build a large scale outdoor company that does and inspires, does good and inspires others to do the same. So we had people who summited Everest talk during that hour. We had people who launched, um, uh, an organization that, um, was trying to rebuild schools in, in West Africa. We had a, you know, former CIA agent who talked about the refugee crisis, um, and the situation in, in Syria and, and like just the atrocities that are happening there. Um, we had um, our uh, impact, one of our impact employees talk about his experience as a peacekeeper in Sudan, uh, South Sudan. And uh, so, yeah, various um, types of um, like teaching um, moments where we basically reinforce and sort of bring stories to light that, uh, that highlight um, why we're you know, trying to do what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So let's talk about the uh, public benefit corporation. So tell us a little bit more about that. Like, what is, how do you, how do you, I guess, uh, well, maybe we'll start. Like, what is like the, the benefit or maybe are there examples of times where the public benefit corporation has come in handy? Um, so I, I think it's important to distinguish between two concepts um, in that context. There is the legal entity type, which is a, a PBC, Public Benefit Corporation, um, that's comparable to a C-Corp or an S-Corp or in terms of being an entity, a legal entity um, here in the U.S. Uh, it's a relatively new entity type um, that um, 
hasn't been around for a long time, but I think that is a reflection of the desire of founders and entrepreneurs to uh, desire and the recognition that, you know, as a company, um, you have a responsibility to not exclusively your shareholders, but also to other stakeholders, communities, um, et cetera. And um, so that's what we are. We incorporated as a public benefit corporation from the get-go against the advice of our legal counsel um, because it was so new. And you know lawyers always see all the risks and, and mm-hmm. warn you about them. So they, they advise us against us saying that you might have difficulty raising money if you're a PBC. Um, we did it anyways because we felt very strongly about that and um, we're the first public benefit corporation to incorporate as such and then raise venture money. Um, has never been a disadvantage, quite frankly. So I think the concern um, that was expressed, we never felt it, um, has never come up as an issue in our fundraising conversations. Um, but that's essentially one part of the cons- of, of that construct is the legal entity public benefit corporation and as i said the biggest difference is that in your articles of incorporation it's basically prescribed that you exist not exclusively to maximize shareholder value and there are some implications from a fiduciary duty perspective you know our shareholders cannot come after us um, with a claim that we are not maximizing shareholder value and are doing you know these things with nonprofits giving you know sales and profits away which if you're a regular corporation, theoretically, there is the risk of that happening, right? Because you're really, as an executive of a C corporation, your only job from a pure um, fiduciary duty perspective is to maximize the value for your shareholder. Um, and so that, that's sort of the legal aspect of it. Um, besides, there's a, um, a, a certification, which is um, called a, a Benefit Corp or B Corp um, certification. And that is um, literally a, um, a certification like many others that are out there in the market that sort of says and shows that you abide by best practices with regard to pursuing um, a um, sort of a healthy, sustainable business from a um, profitability perspective, but an, also an environmental and a people perspective. Sort of this triple bottom line concept, mm. um, and any any legal entity, no matter what legal entity you are, you can be certified as a B Corp, um, and um, we are both. We started out as being only a um, public benefit corporation as a legal entity, but then um, last year we also were certified as a um, B Corp. Um, so we're both now, and um, just really um, exciting to be part of that community of entrepreneurs who. Um, feel that, yeah, business is about more than just making money. Uh Um, And business can actually be used as a force for good and and a very sustainable force for good. And that's that's sort of the whole concept and idea behind that. Uh So does it mean that you're allowed to or you are protected if you make decisions that might uh, solely benefit, let's say, the manufacturers that you work with and absolve you from the fiduciary duty to maximize profit for your shareholders? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I'm not an attorney, so you know, I think there is a, in theory, that's correct. <clears throat> I think you're not absolved from the um, responsibility of, you know, an executive uh, to your investors to make the business work, right? So mm-hmm. if you, um, if you only you know, if you make decisions that sort of are to the detriment of the organization and are, you know, risking the success um, of the organization, 
you'll get axed no matter what, right? Um, so it doesn't protect you from making unsound business decisions. But it does mean that you have a better, a stronger position to justify why you're um, making certain decisions that have maybe a more longer-term impact mm-hmm. um, on the strength of the brand and for sure on the strength of you know, your supply chain, for example. Um, so I think it just sort of balances and sets expectations like from the get-go, basically. Any investor that we talk to, we, we signal, hey, yes, we're building a large profitable brand, but we're doing it with a purpose of impacting as many people as we can through our um, various humanitarian efforts. So I think it just balances that discussion or infuses um, a, a certain yeah, clarity with regard to what is the real why, again, of the organization, like why are we doing what we're doing? It does not absolve you from having to build a successful business because that's ultimately what makes you know, uh, an enterprise, an organization, or a business different from a nonprofit is that, you know, it self-funds at scale once you reach profitability. And I think um, it doesn't change that dynamic. That that pressure to get to profitability is there whether you're a PBC or a C-Corp or an S-Corp or any other legal entity for that matter. Mm, makes a lot of sense. So what kind of companies or entrepreneurs should look into following the footsteps, following your footsteps by creating a public benefit corporation? I don't think there is a like, specific industry or type of you know company vertical that um that is particularly suited for um, a public benefit corporation i think um, anybody can choose that entity type if they feel strongly that um they the reason that they go into business is not exclusively to make money for themselves or um, the people who you know fund them um so we that's really the whole idea is to be at the forefront of of a movement of inspiring other entrepreneurs to follow suit and um, and recognize. And there are many examples. We're not the first ones to do this, right? There are many, many other examples. Warby Parker, Tom's, Patagonia is a, is a public benefit corporation. Um, so I think, you know, we're, we're just really, really grateful to be part of a community, a growing community um, of uh, companies and, and entrepreneurs that are going that path. Um, but I don't think that there's any limit to who can or should not be um, uh, a, a benefit corp. I think one thing that is important, though, and, and we, we get that question a lot when we speak at universities and um, you know student groups, that it's hard, right? It's hard enough to start a business. It's hard mm-hmm. enough to get to profitability, and, and many companies never get to that point. So I think you need to be very clear about that. And that needs to be at the like forefront of what you're trying to achieve. Uh, because ultimately, you will fall short with all the, the impact that you want to have. If you can't make the business work, mm-hmm. all of that is mute, right? And so um, I, I think that's just very, very important that entrepreneurs, especially when you're a first-time entrepreneur and it's it's so difficult to get a business off the ground, especially the first time around, um, that make sure you focus on that. And if you feel really strongly that you have something that's you know unique and sustainable and with a great product market fit, and you you feel very strongly about a social cause or the, you know your organization having a positive impact, that's great, wonderful. Please do it. But please make sure 
that the business fundamentals are strong enough to sustain that. Mm, makes sense. You can't. It's the idea that you can't help others if you can't help yourself first. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Makes sense. So, for anyone out there that wants to become a public benefit corp, what's the process like? Um, it's you know, it's basically the incorporation is very similar. If you from the get go start as a as a benefit corp, um, it's very similar to any other entity type. Um, in our case, we're a Delaware PBC, um, but no matter where you are, obviously the rules and regulations are different. So I think the, the best advice there is to work with an attorney um, to just guide you through that process. Um, and uh, that, that differs from, from state to state. I do not have any experience in terms of converting from being some other entity type to a benefit corp. Um, but, you know, that's, again, the, the sort of question. You, you don't have to be, right? You could also start by saying, hey, no matter what entity I am, I at least want to get certified as a, as a B Corp. And, um, and that's perfectly, um, perfectly you know, acceptable and, and great. And so that's completely independent from the entity type. Mm, makes sense. Uh, so I want to talk about what you're saying earlier about empowering these uh, manufacturers, these people that I think you said the Philippines that were working for you. And when you were telling me, I was just thinking in my head that a lot of entrepreneurs I've spoken to uh, on the podcast, off the podcast, would be very nervous about doing what you guys did, right? Where you are empowering these uh, manufacturers to make these decisions. You know, a lot of times I hear stories about how uh, they worked with a manufacturer. They're not there telling them exactly what to do and exactly how to do things. Everything falls apart and doesn't end up with the products that they want. So how did you come? Did you have those fears? And like, how did you come to make this decision? Yeah, so I think we're... We're very fortunate with our product team. They they've been very they've had a lot of experience in their respective fields, whether that's pack manufacturing or um, or apparel. And um, so we, in the case of the factory in the Philippines, you know, CJ has been working with that factory for many years and had a a very strong relationship, a trust relationship. Um, and so I think it was a little easier to take that you know leap of faith to say. Hey, we, we know how incredibly talented these people are, and we want to give them a chance to like really show that um, and have seen how skilled they are as, as, as artisans and, and, and as makers. And so, uh, yeah, that's sort of the, the basis from which we made that decision um, with that knowledge. And it turned out amazingly well. And um, I think if you work with a factory for the very first time and you don't have that understanding and, and trust, I think it's a little more difficult. Um, and I think it's probably also a good idea to start out in our case, you know, the, we, we did manufacture several batches of this product where we did give them a full tech pack where everything was exactly specified. Um, like you normally would in a manufacturing process. And so I think, and then we knew that they had gone through that process, and uh, and then we we sort of gave them the free reins to design themselves. So I think uh, it was strong pre-existing relationships that were established over a longer period of time, and B, the fact that they had experience with the product, so it wasn't the first time that they were making this specific product. Um, so I think that that helps to to de-risk uh, an approach like that for sure. So what would you say is the biggest or has been the biggest benefit to to the company by having this initiative to let the factories design the products? Yeah, I think um, you know from day zero we said that we were not going to build this company by spending you know hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars on performance marketing, on 
Google and Facebook and whatnot. But instead, we want to find ways to empower our customers to tell our story and to give them a reason and product that's amazing enough for them to want to talk about it and uh, and has enough of a, like a, a rich backstory that they want to talk about it and show others. And uh, and I think that Aldea does exactly that. It mm-hmm. it has this like very deep and, mm-hmm. and 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 rich backstory that perfectly encapsulates who we are as a brand and why we're different from others. And uh, so I think that's been the biggest benefit that it really in, it gives people a reason to chat to their friends about the cool pack. It's also super colorful, so you stand out when you wear it. And um, so I think that that to me has been the biggest benefit besides the fact that you know, we're having a real impact in our supply chain and, um, and are having like, you know, happier workers and, and all that. Um, but I think from a pure like reach and marketing perspective, um, that's been the biggest one, right? The storytelling that comes with, um, a product like that. Mm-hmm. So how do you get the customers to tell your story? You know, because let's say someone's shopping on your site, they buy the product and they don't look anywhere else on your site, which I, you know, I guess is a rare, uh, occurrence, but let's say they get the product. Are you sending them educational material about the brand, about the people behind the brand that are in the factors? Like, how are you getting them the story in the first place for them to spread to their friends and family? Sure, yeah. So I think there is sort of the pre-purchase um, education and there's the post-purchase education. Pre-purchase, a lot of that happens on the PDP, obviously, um, where we we do believe in in video. Um, if you go on the the PDP for the Luzon Daldia, there's, you know, you see a video that basically tells the story of that product. You're in the factory, you see CJ working with the people there and having them talk about their experience of putting this product together. And, um, and I think that that's been um, very helpful to, you know, get that message across. Um, post-purchase, yes, we, we put hang tags on all products, but it's a little, it's a little harder, right? In, a you know two-dimensional hang tag to really communicate the awesomeness um, off the product. So we put little cues on the product itself. Um, like for example, on the Daldia, if you open up the front zip pocket, um, there's a sticker that says one of one to basically signal, hey, you have a unique product, and that sort of is directly linked to the backstory of how it was made. Um, so it's um, it's it's not an an easy task, um, but I think we we firmly believe in uh, in video as a powerful tool to do that online. Um, and then the other aspect is that we firmly believe in in person experiences um, where we expose people to the values that our brand stands for face to face. And um, we've we've launched an event series called the Questival. Where we we do that, um, where we edu- we basically bring it's a twenty four hour outdoor adventure race where we bring you know people together, uh, do a lot of product education, storytelling, um, and expose them to products over a twenty four hour period as they're racing across their city, completing various tasks. Um, so it's it's um, both you know what we do online, um, information that we attach to the product, and then in person um, product education and storytelling. 
Yeah, let's talk about the uh, Questival. This is like, I think you labeled as an adventure race. So tell us a little bit more about how, how did you how did you begin to organize something like this? You know, because a lot of entrepreneurs out there that are listening, I think they are attracted to starting online business because they don't have to put together in-person events. But obviously there's a lot of benefit to this by what you guys are doing, by going to trade shows, by networking, by just getting out there, behind, out behind the computer, outside the office and actually meeting your customers. So tell us a little bit more about how you got started to create like a, an event series like this. Mm, yeah. Yeah, you know, it was really born out of the the same sort of mantra. We we cannot buy traffic. We cannot, and, and and that's not to say that we don't do performance marketing. We do, right? We do do retargeting and and you know PPC and and you know affiliates and all that. But it's complementary to the organic brand building. And to this day, 84 percent of our traffic is organic, um, and only you know fifteen percent or so is is paid. And, um, and so that was sort of the, the general belief when we started the brand that we wanted, we wanted to find a way to get in front of customers um, in an authentic manner where we could tell our story, where we could engage with them. Um, and it's just really hard to do that online, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that sort of was the, the impetus for the Questable. Um, initially, we just thought it would be our launch event, right? That's how we wanted to get the word out on, on day zero, April 11 of 2014. Um, so we put together this event um, with the same team that also basically put together the, you know, the whole, the product, the e-commerce backend and all that. And, um, and it was, it was a lot of work, man, that first, like the last four weeks before launching, which is really the time that we had to, to, you know, organize this, this event and, uh, and roll it out. Um, we just didn't sleep. It was crazy, but, um, but that's how it is, right? I mean, that, that's just the, the early days of, of launching a business are just like that. And you look back at them, uh, in, uh, yeah, with very fun memories. Um, but that's, yeah, we were essentially launching a product brand. We were launching it online, but then we also organized this event, um, which on uh, the first year we had 1500 people sign up to it. Um, we promoted it on mainly college campuses. Um, we, our logo is the is a llama, um, and so we rented llamas at that point. We own two llamas now, so we're one of the few wow. e-commerce companies to have a, a livestock line item <laughs> on our balance sheet um, because of those two llamas. But back then, we didn't, and we rented them and just showed up on college campuses um, with those llamas and uh, and started talking to people about code epoxy and and this event that was coming up. And normally when you're on campus trying to like hand out flyers or promote a brand, you get kicked off by campus security like within minutes. Uh-huh. But those llamas, man, they really delivered. They're so weird that <laughs> you know, we had campus police take selfies with the llama and like letting us walk around and chat with people and people wanted to hear what we had to say. And so it was just a great way to get the word out and um, get people excited about the, the first Questable. Um, which, as I'd mentioned, is a, a 24-hour outdoor adventure race. So we put a list of 300 tasks together um, that people can choose from. Um, they work in teams. Uh, there's a big kickoff party on a Friday afternoon where they we have vendors, uh, some of our nonprofit partners, and people can start completing challenges right there. We built an app that basically guides them through the experience, and they snap a picture whenever they complete a challenge. 
and upload that to um, you know social media. And so it was it, it was an incredible experience. You know, we had that first day, the first twenty four hours of our launch, we had over thirty thousand social media posts of people completing challenges and pushing them to Facebook and Twitter or trending on Twitter here in, in Utah. And it was just an incredible way, you know, to get the brand out there. And so, you know, we we felt, and then at the same time, you know, people who participate, they buy a ticket and they get a backpack in return. And so we, we seed product um, at the same time as really exposing people through the challenge list to what we stand for as a brand. So you can pick from challenges such as, you know, built a fire without matches, like outdoor, you know, uh, outdoorsy survival type challenges. Uh, various hikes and um, you know outdoor activities, mountain biking, whatnot. Um, but then there are also humanitarian do-good challenges where we have you know clean up a park or you know volunteer at a food bank or a homeless shelter, etc. So it was just an amazing way to expose people to who we were, who Cotopaxi, what Cotopaxi stood for, and um, and the results were incredible in terms of um, really creating these um, evangelists for the brand that really felt strongly about Cotopaxi and, and uh, wanted to promote it and, um, um, you know, talk about it online and with their friends. And uh, so it was, it was an amazing, amazing experience for us. Um, and that has then led to rolling it out into a full event series um, where we did, um, in the first year, we did six events in Salt Lake and San Francisco, Seattle, um, Denver, Portland, and Las Vegas. Um, and now this year, um, we have um, close to 15 um, for the first time on the East Coast, Boston, New York, uh, as well as Chicago, San Diego. Um, and we're going back to all the cities where we were in before. So it uh, it's really become a part of the brand and people recognize us for it. Um, you're absolutely right. It is a lot of work. You know, putting these events together is not easy. And, um, so it, uh, it, uh, yeah, it takes a lot of effort and, uh, can cost a lot of money if you're not careful. Um, so it's, it has worked really well for us, but I think, um, and I strongly encourage other entrepreneurs to think through, okay, what is the, not make, do a questable, right? That it won't work. It works great because we're an outdoor gear brand, but, um, think through what could be, what could I come up with in terms of physical experiences, mm-hmm. That, um, that let me build a genuine relationship with a customer base um, and a customer base that I can then go back to and, um, and, and poll and get feedback from and listen to. And so I think that's, that's the mandate. Like, can you, what, what is sort of the equivalent for other brands in terms of physical in-person experiences? We, we've definitely found that to be a great, great way to enter a new city um, and really get the word out in a very genuine and unique way. Yeah, that's awesome. I, didn't, I had no idea that this was a part of your company from the b- very beginning. So you did this once to launch, obviously a ton of work. What did you see or what did you experience that made you guys say, let's do this again and do this multiple times? Sure. Yeah, so I think there's some, uh, some hard data that, um, that is very, very encouraging in terms of um, you know, the people who participate in these events, they purchase a ticket so we can um, trace back um, just through the, the email address, how they're then performing as uh, as customers, mm-hmm. and um, so we we see you know a higher average order value, higher lifetime revenue, um, and so it's uh, you know a very very valuable cohort of customers, which kind of makes sense, right? They've been exposed to the brand in a very 
intense, almost cathartic experience during those 24 hours. It's really as immersive as you can get, you know, going mm-hmm. to these exactly. events. Exactly. And um, so we built in this on the app, there's, you know, you log your challenges, but then there's also a feed, which is like a, a hot or not feed where you see the submissions of all other teams and you can basically vote on the other teams. Um, and so we see at every event, a couple of million interactions with the brand, like the last Salt Lake event, we had um, 3000 participants and um, I think 2.6 million swipes um, with the app over the 24 hours. So wow. um, just a very engaging experience. And so these, the, these cores of customers are, are incredibly valuable from a, like a product customer perspective. And it's just an amazing way to get people to talk about the brand, right? In a again, non-intrusive, non-advertising um, type manner. And so that that's really what made us, you know, feel so strongly about this. And um, uh, and uh, and yeah, roll out more. We're constantly monitoring. We're constantly tweaking and iterating the event to make sure it still delivers on that. Um, you know, initial idea of exposing new incremental customers to um, to the brand, um, but so far it's been uh, it's been a really amazing way um, to get the word out. And you know, people purchase a ticket, so these events are typically profitable once they reach a certain scale. And so, the cost per acquisition for these customers is actually negative. So it's a it's a pretty interesting dynamic. Yeah, that's amazing. So, what what if if anything went wrong during the the first in person event? Just for anyone else out there that's thinking about doing something like this, what are some things to look out for that maybe you didn't expect to happen? Yeah, I think um, for one, it takes a lot of time and effort to pull this off, right? So we had like all hands on deck for you know several weeks to make this happen. In addition to you know launching the business, <clears throat> which in and of itself is. Um, is a feat. And so I think that's, that's one thing to look out for. Um, make sure you don't let any of the other balls that you have in the air drop because you're trying to pull off an event. Um, and then I think the other thing is to, um, you know, just in our, we had a very specific problem, if you will, with our initial event where we, uh, now all the voting and um, judging of the team. So there are winners, right? So the, the teams who accrue the most points over the 24 hour period, they get a, you know, like a big prize. It's like a travel, um, this batch of last year's winners, they went to the Questable World Championship um, tour, which was just happened uh, four weeks ago down in, in South America. Um, the winning teams from each city raced against each other from Belize to Panama. Um, and basically did a questival down there with, you know, humanitarian projects on the way and like just various cool adventures. And so, you know, it's a big ticket premium and, and people were really excited about it. And, and, and now all the judging is uh, done by the participants themselves. But for the first event, we actually picked the winners, like we code epoxy by like looking at their content and, you know, how many points they had accrued and whatnot and like filtering out for any like inconsistencies and whatnot. And man, that was a big uproar because people like accused us of rigging it and like not being fair. And so it's just a, if you do some type of a race, then just be very clear about how does, what are the rules, who's enforcing them, who's picking the winners and just try to extract yourself as much as possible from that whole process because otherwise you may take the blame of not picking the right things. Makes sense. So how do you, you know, did this once for the launch. How do you, how did you guys prepare to scale something like this up to, you know, have multiple events every year? 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, ultimately, it's it's a matter similar to you know the product discussion we'd had. Um, we we are not events people, right? We had never done this before. We pulled the first one off, and it went really well. But man, it was so much work. And so, in order to scale it again, we recognized that we needed somebody who had done this before. So we um, we brought on board um, our VP of events, um, Seth, who is uh, one of the founders of the Color Run. Um, oh, cool. So uh, you may or not be familiar. It's basically these races, those five Ks, where you start with a white T-shirt, and um, and then they throw chalk at you at various stations. So you end up with this like crazy color everywhere, and people it's like super happy it's not time it's about the again the experience of you know doing a 5k as opposed to the time um, with which you complete the race and uh, so he was one of of the original founders they had um, you know millions of racers um, over the last couple of years so very very experienced uh, event professional and uh, and he basically oversees all our quest level events now um, with uh, with an event director flip and um and so yeah it was that recognition of we cannot do this alone we need some help and um and and we brought somebody on board who could uh, who could do that for us makes sense so for anyone out there that's thinking about going down the same path do you have any recommendations on how they can get started if they're you know a very small company with very very limited budget and they're just trying to dip their toes into uh trying to launch in-person events to connect with the community to you know build these relationships with customers yeah, well, I think my recommendation would be to just try something really small, you know, like invite people. And we still do a lot of that stuff as well. Um, invite people to come to your office um, and and have, you know, just to get together there. Like we had like barbecues at our office where we had people just show up and we threw some like burgers on the grill and we talked about product and uh, and showed them like new prototypes and got feedback um, we organized hikes where people, you know, just come meet us at our office. We'll go on a hike together with the founders. And uh, so we have all kinds of, you know, people come together and, you, you know, you just spend time together and chat and really get an understanding of what matters to them when they purchase and think about outdoor gear. And um, so and none of these take nearly the like capital or the time and effort to to organize a 1500 people event right but i think it's a great way to get started and to like get a sense for okay how could this work um and then maybe you do something at a just a small venue um without you know big permitting or anything like that but you know just basically start small just like you would with any you know, sort of this idea of like sort of lean startup methodology, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with. I think the same applies to events. You start with sort of your MVP and then you iterate, iterate, iterate um, and, and learn um, along the way. And I think for events, it's the same thing. Start small and then uh, continue to grow it from there. Makes sense. So what are some goals for the remainder of this year? What are some goals you have for Ricotta Epoxy? Yeah, so we're, 2016 is a, is an, an amazing year for us. You know, it's the first time that we're actually opening up um, the company to wholesale. So we've received so many requests, inbound requests over the first 14, 16 months of the business um, of retailers saying, you know, asking us if they could sell our product. And so we, um, we started to um, pursue that in earnest this year. Um, so we'll be in, uh, in REI starting in the fall and, uh, and various like specialty retailers um, in the Pacific Northwest and, 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 and other places. And so that, that's an exciting development, um, wholesale. Um, we're, uh, we're moving our office. Um, we outgrow a very small space um, uh, here in, in Salt Lake and are actually moving to a downtown location and are opening um, a retail store. 
which we're really excited about, first foray into physical retail. And um, so, yeah, I mean, those are the sort of the big strategic projects for us this year. Obviously, besides scaling and continuing to grow our e-commerce space um, is, uh, is physical retail, our own store, um, and, uh, and wholesale. And so we're very, very much in our infancy. You know, two years is nothing in the lifetime of a brand. Um, so we're still very much in listening and learning mode. Um, but are seeing some some really encouraging you know early signs and signals from the market, um, and um, I'm really pumped to meet a lot of our customers face to face in our physical retail space. Um, and uh, so yeah, that's sort of like the big strategic projects that are that are on the dock for us. Awesome, very exciting times for you guys. So thanks so much, Stefan. So Cotopoxy.com is the website again. It's C O T O. P-A-X-I.com. That's where you can also find links to the Questival, the in-person events that, that they run. Anywhere else you recommend the listeners check out they want to follow along with what you guys are up to? No, I mean, we're really active on all social media channels. Um, Anders um, runs our, our social media and he's done an incredible job. Um, more recently, Snapchat has become a big thing for us. So follow us there, follow us on Facebook, on Instagram, and um, by all means, please reach out. If you're ever in, in Utah, come stop by our office. It will be in downtown Salt Lake. Um, so we're always excited to chat with other entrepreneurs and uh, just exchange notes. Awesome. Yeah, definitely check out the YouTube channel too. You guys have a lot of great videos on there. I was watching great. some earlier. I think uh, very great high quality videos, especially if you want to learn more about what the Questival is like. There's a lot of kind of uh, shoots or videos um, documenting that. So thanks again for your time, Stefan. I really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, same. Thanks, Felix. So great to be part of the community. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.